My wife and I met this week's guest, Mr. Leon Waters, during a visit to New Orleans, a city that I've known and visited for nearly 40 years. At least I thought I knew the city, but Mr. Waters and his vast knowledge of African life in the Americas, specifically the life of Africans in Louisiana, their arrival, survival, cultural practices, religious practices, contributions to the nation's wealth, and resistance and rebellion against slavery and oppression, Mr. Waters upended everything I thought I knew and set my life, literally, on a different path. Now, not just me. National Book Award winner Clint Smith, Daniel Rasmussen, the Zen Education Project, Smithsonian Magazine, and others, nearly anybody who's studying, writing, preparing documentaries, anything about Louisiana's history, especially Louisiana's black history, all cite their time with Mr. Waters as fundamental. He's the co-chair and commissioner for Slavery Ancestral Burial Grounds Preservation Commission for the state of Louisiana. He's the board chairperson for the Louisiana Museum of African American History. And he's also the manager and founder of Hidden History LLC, a research, tour, and publishing company. Check them out at hiddenhistory.us. So for all of those lo lofty titles, again, reach out to him, connect with him. He is someone who wants you and me and everyone else to know the truth. Hidden or not, he is bringing the truth to the masses. Check him out. This week, he joins us on the Parlay in All Blue to walk through America's largest slave rebellion. Much of this hidden this history has been obfuscated and unavailable. But Mr. Waters joins us to talk about the African slave rebellion on Louisiana's German coast in 1811. Mr. Waters does not suffer fools, so be prepared and buckle up because he gathers the host up almost immediately in how we talk about things and the terminology we use. So you are going to get a lot of information in this interview, a lot of insight in this interview, and I hope that the time that you spend with this podcast and with Mr. Waters is as fulfilling to you as it has been to me. So with that, thank you for joining us here at the Parlay in All Blue. Mr. Leon Waters, welcome to the Parlay in All Blue. How are you? I'm pretty good today. How are you doing today? I'm very good and I am honored because I've wanted to have you on for a while, but I wanted to make sure that we had something that we could focus on because your knowledge and your your command of history, of Black history, and this particularly Black history in Louisiana is so vast that we could do nine or 10 episodes and not cover everything. Because as you know, my wife and I met you back in, I want to say it was March of 2019. We were there for Super Sunday to take in the Mardi Gras Indians, and we took your tour, the Hidden Histories tour, which is the best tour that 
I have been on, and I've been on them from all over the world, from Seville to Zimbabwe or what have you, because of the quality of content and also because of the canyon of information that I stepped into that I did not know. And since that time, uh, whether it's Pulitzer Prize winner Clint Smith, Daniel Rasmussen, Smithsonian Magazine, all reference you before they start on their award-winning work. I also follow Dr. Berthrude Albert, and, and she is Haitian, so I'm sure I'm butchering the name, but I saw her on one of your tours there in New Orleans, and we had on our show earlier this season Dr. Brian Mitchell, who is now the director of research at the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Museum. He's a, he's a New Orleans native, and he talked to us about Reconstruction and Oscar Dunn and what have you. And as in he and I were talking after the interview, I mentioned your name and his eyes lit up. So you are the guru of history and all of the heavyweights reference you. So we are so happy to, to have you. One of the things that you talked about on the tour that that um, my wife and I went on with you was the German Coast Rebellion, the German Coast Uprising, which is the largest slave revolt in United States history. And listen, I'd heard of Nat Turner. And what I know about Nat Turner's revolt is only so much because of the way history is presented in the United States. John Brown and uh, from tri trips to Charleston, Denmark Vesey's uh, rebellion, but had never heard of the German Coast Rebellion. So uh, we want to spend some time with you today on that. And let's just start with, and we'll get into it a little deeper. What was the German Coast Rebellion? Well, let, let me begin by stating correctly, there was no such thing as the German Coast Rebellion. There were no Germans rising up Amen. against an oppressor class to fight to get their freedom. This is typical of the white oppressor class to rename, to distort, to foment incorrect understanding and incorrect identification of things. This is very prevalent, pervasive throughout our history. It is much more accurate to really call this the African uh, rebellion, and even more precise, it's, it's more appropriate to call it the Charles Deslon heroic mm -hmm. 1811 slave revolt, because this was an attempt by the enslaved Africans to overthrow an American city, the American government that was in New Orleans at the time. New Orleans would be the capital of what was called Orleans Territory. Uh, when the United States, when the Haitian Revolution, excuse me, forced Emperor Napoleon to cough up the what became known as the Louisiana Purchase as a result of the sacrifice of the revolutionary women, men and children in blood, forcing that to happen, which incorrectly is credited to the fine salesmanship skills of Robert Livingston, and James Monroe, a future president, most of our people in this yeah. country are not aware of the tremendous direct impact that led to the Louisiana Purchase, the coughing up, the successful Haitian Revolution. 
Now, this is going to inspire enslaved people who have been brought from Africa, brought from Haiti, brought from numerous uh, islands in the Caribbean. This is going to inspire them to fight for freedom. And one of the enslaved uh, gentlemen that was brought from Haiti, a brother named Charles, owned by the Deslon family, unknown to the Deslon family, as the, the success of the Haitian Revolution was progressing, the many of the slaveholders in Saint-Domaine at that time it was called, would flee. They would run to Cuba, but many more would bring their chattel property to Louisiana. And unknowing to the Deslon family, one of those persons that would be very key to the entire revolt would be a laborer named Charles. Mr. Charles was impacted, influenced by the Haitian Revolution. We do not know if he was actually a participant, nor do we know if he was actually born in Haiti. But we do know that, like many of the enslaved that were brought to the Caribbean, as well as particularly St. Domaine, many of these people had gotten some training in the military arts. So the Deslon family flees here. And as they fled here, bringing their human chattel property, they are actually bringing the seeds of freedom with them. They are bringing the seeds of revolution with them. And and through a period of time, uh, lasting for quite a lengthy period of time, we do not know exactly how long, under the leadership of a gentleman named Charles, who become known as Charles Deslon, he would pull together a committee, a team of women and men who understood that it was not enough to just escape from freedom or run away or become a maroon living in the swamps. They understood that the system that was oppressing and exploiting them must be overthrown. And not only overthrown, but it must be replaced with another system. And this will become the heroism of these phenomenal women and men. And what I hope we can talk about today is something different what Hollywood always talks about. Whenever there's a discussion on on slave revolts, the movies that come out of Hollywood, sometimes the books that are written, it's always about the fight. It's always about the fight. It's never about the vision or the revolutionary vision of what these women and men saw, what they're going to replace this with. And that's the most important thing. That's the element of what I call intellectual brilliance. So hopefully we'll get into that today. We will absolutely get into that because there are, you know, some some foundational work that I've done in getting here. Like I said, your tours, but that led me on the path of the Black Jacobins, reading that about the Haitian Revolution and then Common Winds about just sort of all of the activity that was happening throughout the Caribbean and in that part of the world about revolution and how the Africans, Africans who were enslaved in Haiti had certainly a an idea of, of not just the fight, but liberation, that they were a part of the Enlightenment era 
and leaders of that era in, in fighting. So we will get into all of that, and that is perfect. And with that, I want to start and step back because I, like so many Americans, when we think of colonization and the uh, the period of bondage and enslavement and how the country is, is built, so much of it is told through the lens of British and what would be sort of New England and the upper portion of the United States through Virginia and Maryland and what have you. One of the things that gets lost is sort of French colonization, Haiti, and Louisiana's impact. If if we could step back just a little bit in terms of what was sort of the French system like in Haiti and in what the, the territory, I think you, you termed it Orleans territory. What did that look like? Well, the Louisiana Purchase would stretch from the Gulf of Mexico to Canada. And it would become twice the size of what then was the United States. The United States at that time was all the territory from the Atlantic Ocean to approximately the Mississippi River. Now here, Louisiana territory was stretched from the Mississippi River almost to Canada and toward the west side of that. And so that becomes a huge area, doubling the size of the eastern side of the United States. When this was done, the territory will divide, be divided into two parts. What you know today as the state of Louisiana became known as Orleans Territory. What you know today from the point of Arkansas all the way to Canada remain Louisiana Territory. Okay? Okay. The United mm-hmm. States government during this time as President Madison will then make New Orleans the capital, the American capital of Orleans territory. So from 1804 to 1812, eight years, this is Mm -hmm. an American colony, so to speak. It's under the American flag, but it's called Orleans territory. It's not a state yet. As all territories developed in the United States, over time, they would be further divided up into what would be called states. Okay. Now, during the time you saw, you'll guess, go ahead. One of the things that, uh, Mr. Waters, that, that, that I had the impression of, of going to from whenever I heard about the Louisiana Purchase, maybe whether it was first grade, fifth grade, 12th grade, whenever, is that it was Napoleon was fatigued and the French treasury was low from his wars in Europe. Yes, and sir. so he needed to, 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 to continue to finance the French government and his plans for uh, imperialism in Europe. No mention of Haiti through K through 12, and even through college, no mention of Haiti of of that at all. Is am I missing something or or fill in the gap for us? No, that's correct. That's the narrative that has dominated uh, schools, elementary, high schools, and colleges, and informally on the streets of America. That's deliberate. Uh, there's a there's a yeah. political objective 
for you to have the incorrect narrative. That's why while having you philosophically embrace a narrative that's not in your interest, the objective is for you to behave and act accordingly. And that means you're going to act accordingly to the interests of the oppressor class that actually controls the state apparatus and actually controls society in general because their ideology, their philosophy dominates. You can see that today with the reactionaries that control the United States government in D.C. The philosophy of Donald Trumpism is uh, serious and it has a tremendous right-wing effect that's influencing today's situation. And, and it's that's just not peculiar here. You see how it's connected globally in the situation of Brazil. Same thing's going on there. So that is correct. And it is hopeful that through people getting introduced to accurate history, authentic history, they will be able to see through this, this fog that is confusing them even more. People, people basically are confused and then they're getting more misinformation. So that's one of the reasons why yeah. we do the tours that we do. We don't want you to have an experience where you're hearing somebody just running their mouth. That's why when you took yeah. the tour, every tour we do, we try to give you documented material that you too can go yeah. in further investigate and come to your own conclusions. And this is our way of trying to ensure you're getting authentic and accurate history. There's quite a bit. There's just really quite a bit of uh, misinformation out here uh, that dominates most of our textbooks, most of our curriculum. And that's designed, it's deliberate to keep us oppressed, unconscious, and uh, working in a way that's really not in our interest. So, so with with that, before we get to the Louisiana Purchase, and before we get to the the rebellion there that happened in New Orleans, just just briefly, because we want to make sure that we stay on on tack in terms of Charles Deslandes' mm-hmm. revolution and rebellion. But what happened in Haiti? that sort of caused the the need for Napoleon to sell Louisiana to the United States? Oh, well, the Haitian Revolution is going to pass through uh, four phases of struggle, okay? Under the leadership first of um, Prophet um, Bookman, it's going to uh, go through a, a first stage where Brother Bookman is going to be captured by the French and executed. It's then going to go under the leadership of brother, um, forget the brother's name, brother Duddy. No, it might have been, Duddy Bookman was, Duddy Bookman was the second person, I believe. The first person, uh-huh. let me back up a second. But this is very important. Yeah. There's four phases. I'm going mm-hmm. to the most definitive account of this. And many people who may not be familiar with this book, I'm, I was glad you were able to share with me about the um, other books that you've been reading. I said, that told me Mr. Yeah. Dalton is getting his material ready. The first person was Vincent Ogie, okay? Vincent Ogie okay. is going to lead okay. in the Haitian Revolution. Vincent's going to be captured. He's going to be executed, all right? The next phase begins with Brother 
uh, Dottie Bookman. Bookman's going to carry on the yep. struggle. Bookman's going to get captured. French execute him. The third person who then replaces those revolutionary leaders is going to be Toussaint Louverture. Louverture is going to be deceived. He's going to be tricked in coming to France to negotiate. Well, they put him in a castle, a dungeon, without a roof. So the snow is going to take care of him. He's going to be killed that way. The fourth person that successfully leads the revolution to complete the victory is going to be Jean-Baptiste Desalines. Desalines will sign, will nail the coffin, the nail in the coffin, and bring this about. Now, in this struggle that takes place for almost 13 years, Napoleon is going to lose close to 50,000 men. That's a lot of men. That's a lot of men. All the protests and demonstrations are going to take place across the whole the whole landscape of France. Because when you lose that many men, you're losing fathers, husbands, uncles, brothers, nephews, cousins, lovers, etc. So the contradictions in France are internally escalating. So with the loss of wars, with the the burning, getting in debt of the treasury from fighting all these wars, with the toll of men being lost as a result of the Haitian Revolution, and also with the help of white soldiers from Poland that played an indirect reserve, it's going to lead to him coughing this whole thing up. You see, at this time in history, France has conquered Poland, okay? France is using troops from Poland, white troops, to go to Haiti along with their French troops to oppress and defeat the enslaved. But while there, the white soldiers from Poland begin to realize, wait a minute, we've been conquered by these people. They got us now doing this dirty work over here. They rebelled and allied with Desaline to help beat Napoleon. Many people are not aware of that. So there's certain sections, mm-hmm. sections on the island where you go to and you and you meet black Haitians with blue eyes. <laughs> OK, that's a result of the correct stand that those people played. They began to realize this is an unjust war. The French have, have oppressed us and now they're using us to oppress another people. So they turn their guns against them. And that helped. It helped. That alliance objectively helped in the final defeat of Napoleon. So that these are conditions that are giving rise to his imminent defeat. And, and with that, it's a lot of, of human life loss on the part of France, but in losing Saint-Domingue, and losing a huge part of the French economy is uh, um, yes, through sugar exports and coffee and other things time, as well. Saint-Domingue was the largest producer of sugar in the world. That yeah. that is that's that's the essence of it. Sugar is coming from of Haiti, um, later become Haiti, Saint-Domingue, and it becomes the largest product that France is accumulating quite a bit of money. Sugar's used for what? Mm-hmm. Sugar's used for sweeteners, candy, coffee sweetener, tea sweetener, alcohol, rum. And so the profits that are being lost now 
because the, 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 the sugarcane plantation owners are being overthrown, that is disrupting the profits that are going from that triangle, Caribbean, Africa, and, and, and Europe and France. This is now strangling the juggle vein. And militarily, he attempted to try to defeat them, but he would be unsuccessful. So, so with that, you know, after they they leave, as you is they're leaving Haiti. You talk about you know formerly French planters, enslavers, they're going to Cuba and all of these places. And you said that Charles ends up in what we now know as as Louisiana, the state of Louisiana, but somewhere along there. And I and I'm just talking about the physical term here. Yeah. And thank you for the correction earlier. The German coast. Is that correct? Yeah, it's called the German coast. Let me tell you why it's called the German coast. It's called the German coast mm-hmm. because it was early populated by German immigrants, okay, in the early 1700s, 1720, 1730, etc. However, by the time the revolt took place in 1811, the majority of plantation owners now are French. So what, okay. so at one time, it's called German Coast because the majority of the plantation owners were Germans. Okay, And at the time, it was called German Coast, by the way. The majority of the people on the coast were enslaved Africans. Okay, But because right. we're, we're not seen as equal, we're discounted. So... Right. It gets the name German Coast. All right. Now, by the time the 1811 revolt came around, it's still predominantly enslaved Africans, but there's more French plantation owners than Germans. So that's just it's just interesting how they tried to continue the inaccuracy in the identification of peoples and in the identification of the coast. It would be much more accurate to call this the African Revolutionary Coast. <laughs> Absolutely. I love that. The African revolutionary coast. Now, so yeah. what would have been the the agriculture on the on the coast there? Was it sugar plantations like in Haiti or no, in the beginning it's agricultural products. It's rice, it's okay. cabbage, okay, it's okay. peas, it's corn, agricultural products. Okay. As the Haitian Revolution unfolds and sugarcane Slave owners are now coming to the river parishes along the Mississippi River. They begin to introduce sugarcane. Okay, and from that point on, from when I say that point on, I'm talking about when they began to come to Louisiana, settle on the Mississippi River, on the river plantations, river parishes, first St. Charles Parish, then St. John the Baptist Parish, and then farther on up, they are introducing sugarcane. And they begin to arrive around around 1807, 1808, 1809, because the revolution in Haiti is picking up and more and more, more, and more of the slaveholding population is seeing the inevitable. We're losing. So let me get the blank out of here before they kill me and bring me to an end. Yeah. So many of them would escape yeah. one here. Many ran to Cuba, bringing their child slaves there, but many more came to Louisiana because Louisiana was a French colony. Cuba was a Spanish colony. Right. Okay. And they're going to settle on the parishes 
River Parishes along the Mississippi River, north of New Orleans. And a particular family called the Deslon family would be the yes. owner of a man named Charles. Charles was a laborer. Okay? He was okay. a laborer. At one point, he was a buggy driver going, visiting different plantations up and down the river, picking up other products, exchanging other products, making deliveries, and what have you. And because of the position he occupied, it presented the opportunity where he can get to know over time who to trust, who to mingle with, who to stay away from. And in time, he secretly pulled together a team of women and men who embraced the idea it's not enough to run away. It's not enough to become a maroon. Because if we do that, this system that is killing, beating, murdering, torturing our people, it will stay in place for generations to come. They, over time, embraced the idea that we must overthrow this system of oppression and exploitation and replace it with our own independent republic and sovereign state. That was their goal. And they had a tremendous vision to accomplish that. Now, if I have a minute, I want to share with you what were the influencers yes. that brought about this. This is very, very important to Absolutely. understand what were the influencers that brought this about. Essentially, there are four. There are four. Now, in the early 1700s, mid-1700s, I should say, you're going to have a number of philosophers, mainly in France, one or two in England, that are arguing, debating what is a better society. These philosophers, the base they call utopian socialists, okay, they're arguing about how a more fair society should be, how the wealthy people should share what they have to make life better for the, the majority. But the reason why they're called utopian is because they believe that there was a way to discuss, reason with these people about this better society. In time, a man named Karl Marx would explain that's impossible. That's impossible. There's no way the oppressors in history would be willing to step down and end their oppression through rational conversation. Okay? All right. Anyway, these philosophers are arguing, debating these things. Okay? Now, mm -hmm. prior to the 1811 slave revolt, you're going to have many revolts throughout the Caribbean prior to 1811, okay? There were many, many revolts. Revolts in, on Jamaica, the, the, the revolts in, on the Virgin Islands, a sister named Queen Rebel led a major revolt against the, uh, the, uh, the Dutch, which led them to get out of the whole business and, re and sold the islands to the United States. That's how the United States Virgin Islands came about, okay? You have you have scores and scores and scores and scores of rebellions taking place throughout the Caribbean prior to 1811. You know, when Christmas comes, you go down to a, the busy section of, a, of, of any American town. You see light bulbs lit up the whole area. You know, the decorations. Yep. 
Well, just think of all yeah. those light bulbs were reddish orange. At one time in the Caribbean, that's how the Caribbean Sea looked up. Revolutionary revolts all throughout the Caribbean. All right? What right. am I saying? I'm saying revolts that took place before 1811, the lessons learned from that would be passed on. It would be passed on. People would discuss this, talk about this. All right? So those are two influences right now. The second, the third, the third influence is this. When the United States came into being and established the uh, United States Constitution of 1787, the Constitution became an advance on what is, quote, a better or more freer society. Okay? Just hang in there with me. Okay. I'm there. That's 1787. 1791 yep. is... Declaration of Rights of Man. It comes out of a proclamation that comes out of France. That document advanced a little farther than United States Constitution. Okay? Mm-hmm. 1792, Olympia Ducre. This lady leads a struggle to say, well, what about us? The Declaration of Rights of Women come out. Rights of Women and Citizens. That document advanced a little more. Yep. What makes a better and society. But each of these documents, each of these new laws maintain the restriction or the oppression of the majority. U.S. Constitution states very clearly enslaved people, people of color. No. Women. No. Okay. Declaration of Rights of Man, Mm -hmm. Declaration of Rights of Women, improved it a bit, but you had to be a property owner. Okay, each one of those, each one of those documents, we study them, really study them. You see, all of them deal with freedom of the numerical few, oppression of the numerical majority. Okay, you want to study that, and then you want to study the period during that time. There's a whole bunch of New oppressor laws, especially in the United States. When you study them, you see how they are laws that provide privileges for the numerical few and oppression for the numerical majority. Okay. Then in 1805, as a result of Desiree's victory, the Haitian Constitution comes into being. I strongly recommend people study the Haitian Constitution of 1805. In fact, take the Haitian Constitution of 1805 and put it right next to the United States Constitution, the Declaration of Rights of Man, Declaration of the Rights of Man. Just put it side by side and then read it. And this is what you're going to discover for the first time in world history. World history. You have a document that, that outlines what the rights Benefits, privileges will be for the numerical majority. This thing is phenomenal. I'm not making this up. I want to. No, I I know you're not. When you read this, you begin to say, oh, my God, it says here. It it, first of all, it states child slavery will be forever abolished. It outlines what the new rights are going to be. It's the first constitution in world history that states what are the elements or qualities of a good citizen, 
of a good husband, of a good man. I mean, they, they introduced morality in the Constitution. And that's the Haitian Constitution of 1805. Yeah, don't take my word for this. Read it yourself. It outlines this. Amen. It's very clear. This is what's going to be for the majority. It states that. Now, since that time, it's been reconquered by France and America. They didn't change the whole Constitution, of course. It's BS. But to see this, you begin to realize, my God, the brilliance of these people. This is my point. Philosophical influencers, numerous, numerous rebellions before 1811, all throughout the Caribbean. Okay. Number three, the laws of the oppressor class versus the laws of the newly freed. The new laws of the newly freed deal with the Haitian Revolution, where they have all kinds of new rights and benefits in that constitution. All right. One of the first things they put in there in the top part is, is this no white man will ever own any land in our country. And the reason why they had that in there written like that is because they don't want anybody who was white to be in a position to exploit and oppress us. Now, that doesn't mean, listen, that doesn't mean it would be that way forever. It means at that time right. in history, that's what it was. So, so logically, it means in the course of time, if you change, well, we can change the law. But we ain't changing it right now. <laughs> you got me? No, yeah, yeah. Permanent. Yeah, no, I totally get it. But, but you got to change so, it. So, Mr. Leon. But one more thing, one more thing. And there's one more influencer mm -hmm. that will help shape the vision of Charles Deslong. That was yeah. the experience, the only experience that we're going through here on the slave plantations up the river. So philosophical influencers, rebellions that took place prior to them, the contradiction between the oppressor laws and the new law laws of Haiti, and coupled with their own experiences here of brutal oppression, all these four components would help shape their vision and help shape and create the kind of constitution that they will establish. And if we have time, I can go through what would have been their constitution. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I want to go through that, but I, I do want to, because everything that you've laid out is exactly why I wanted to have you on the show, because what, I, what I'm hearing you say is that Charles Deslons is it's not just a sort of a revolution or a rebellion that's just sort of, we tie it, let's fight. This is something that is passed down through history. It's one of mind and spirit and of, of vision. So thank you for that. That is actually, that, that's as critical as, as anything. I do want to, so you mentioned him being a buggy driver and him going up and down throughout that area, which now is like River Road and where a lot of the plantations and some people, I guess, are still having weddings and birthday parties and all of that. He has privileges and is organizing at this time, and he's organizing to, to do what specifically? He's organizing secretly to build a collective shared leadership, okay? He's organizing in the middle of the night. You sneak off, meet around the swamps. They're organizing a way to be careful 
not to allow any spy, any person who is tight and close with the oppressor, the master, to be around, to be able to bring information back. He's organizing the vanguard. He's organizing the vanguard. And this vanguard will have the responsibility to pull together the various enslaved people on each plantation to strike mm-hmm. a blow for freedom. Okay. And, and do they strike that blow? Is that a figurative blow or a literal blow? It's both. It's both. You see, okay. once they pull together a team where trust is sealed in blood, so to speak, this team has certain responsibilities to further recruit various people on the different plantations. And this was done in a, a way to vet out potential traders. There were people when the revolt eventually kicked off, you know, a date was selected. Okay. When we're going to actually launch this. And prior to it being launched, there were certain people that were isolated, locked up. We don't trust you, Joe. So we're locking you over here. Mm-mm, no, you might rat us out. <laughs> you see, I mean, right, this is how right, they, they, right. they, 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 they vetted people. They, they, they went through it's best for this person to stay here to begin to reorganize the plantation. We don't want this person to know about this, this decision or that decision, et cetera. This, this thing had to, you see, to do this required quite a bit of planning, but quite a bit of discipline, et cetera. So one of the things we do. It's planning, discipline, strategy, and agency. Planning, yeah. discipline, strategy, agency, organizing. And right. I, and, and I'm going to tell you why I, 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 I love that you're saying this. Because no matter whether it's our people being Frederick Douglass, Martin Luther King, Huey P. Newton, Angela Davis, we always get narrowed down to some caricature of a march or a beret or what have you. And all of the intellect and the discipline and the organizing and the strategy gets left out. And it sounds like Charles Deslongs is a forefather to all of those people who come after in, in that sense. You mentioned they picked the date. What date did they pick and why? Okay. The date they picked was January 8, 1811. Let's back up what objectively was going on. On December 1st, in this part of the world, begins the carnival season. The carnival season is the beginning of parties, lavish parties, festivities by the bourgeois class. It continues today. Okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. At this time, the harvesting season of the sugar cane, well, as other products, but mainly the sugar cane, is just about completed. Unlike the Caribbean, you could get two crops in one year. The tropical conditions here aren't the same in the Caribbean. You get one crop a year. So if you were successful managing the crop with all the environmental challenges of the river overflowing or storms coming, hurricanes, you could do, you could make pretty good money. Okay. So the festivities are beginning. Christmas comes. Festivities are going on. Holiday. 
New Year's Day is coming. Yeah. All right. Yeah. The oppressor class is not paying as much attention. You got me? That's number one. I got it. Number two, the second thing going on, second condition going on, is there's a dispute between the United States and Spain over West Florida. It's quite possible they may be going to war. So several hundred troops that are stationed here have been sent to West Florida. And uh, let me let me stop there, and this is just for the audience, not for you, because I want to give people West Florida at that time is what we now know would be Baton Rouge, Natchez, Mississippi, Pensacola, the, yeah. Mobile, Alabama. Just, and right. I, I just want to put that there for everybody for just a map to understand that the the maps of colonization are not the maps of the current United States. So keep going. I just want to make sure because that is important that there are two things that are happening. It's the celebratory season, the end of the the planting season, so the counting money, and this lawn and the revolutionaries are also aware of international events at yeah. this time. So I, I'm going to let you keep it keep it going. Yeah, it, it would be helpful if we had like a map on the wall so, so the people looking at this can see what we're talking about. Okay, so anyway, yeah. they learned that troops are being sent, several hundred troops are being sent. Because America might be going to battle. Okay. So given this, they decide this might be the best time to strike a blow for freedom. They got less soldiers here. They're too busy partying, having fun, waiting for all their monies to come in. Money, products have been shipped to Europe. Products have been shipped to the East Coast. This might be the best time to strike a blow. So, And they're drunk and smoking a lot of cigars. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So because of these, looking at these, so what I want to bring home to you is this. The decision wasn't a decision based off some spontaneity, some wish, some hope. These people behave brilliantly like any modern day military general staff would would behave. They look at all the conditions to figure out what's the best. Now, this is the best time to hit these people. Okay. So that day would be chosen, and they decided that when the date would be chosen by a select few, that would be then communicated to the key leaders who are positioned at key plantations up along the river. Are you with me? I'm I'm completely with you. And so I want to digress a second. One of the things we do when we do this hidden, hidden hidden history festival celebration every year, one component is a literary visual arts performance contest. The other is a cultural school tour. It's the cultural school tour that we do composed of cultural practitioners, performers, dressed in the uh, attire of the enslaved with their different instruments and weapons. What they do, they reenact key moments in the whole revolt. But what they reenact is not the fight. They re- re- they react to what is taking place in the middle of the night, in the swamps, at secret meetings, where they're debating. What are we going to place replace this with? How are we going to do it? And so you see what you see, what a student sees in the play are people debating, people yeah. arguing, people making proposals, 
what should be in a new constitution that we as black people will be governing our society. They're learning all of this, what it takes, what it takes to not only have a vision, but what it's going to take to actually implement, what it's going to take to govern, what it's going to take to build relations of other people who have been oppressed. What, what relations are we going to establish with the indigenous people who have been pushed out savagely and murdered and butchered by these people to steal their land? What establish, what relations we're going to build with the other islands in the Caribbean Sea where our people are still victims? What relations are we going to build with Mother Africa? You see, we build a new society. Are we going to have relations with Mother Africa? Are we going to have things to, to, to build and relate. You see, they discussed all it. They even discussed what are going to be the new symbols we're going to have. Certainly, they're not going to have the fleur de lis. That was a symbol to, 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 to um, and, engrave us. They're not going to have that. That yeah. was a symbol of the Catholic Church to oppress us. Certainly, certainly, the whole place is going to be renamed. I don't know what name it would have been called. It wouldn't have been called Louisiana, though. <laughs> and all the statues... Louisiana. And all the statues that existed of all kind of white oppressors, they're going to replace all that with statues of women and men who are heroes of the people. And this is going to bring an end to the southward expansion of chattel slavery. So this thing was really significant because they would have control of the Mississippi River, where 43 percent of all USA trade is done today. I didn't mean to. I didn't want to take. No, 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 Mr. Leon, I want I want to because everything that you said there is one piece I want to 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 draw out for you from the audience that is that is culturally significant in that that you talked about the different constituents of people there. There are people, black people I'm talking about, people of African descent that I'm talking about now specifically, people who black people who were enslaved that had come from Haiti. We also have African people there, whether they be from the Sante tribe or the Congo tribe, people who are not necessarily aligned. And where I'm going with this is I want to understand what the Sunday dances and the drumming and and how all of that would have played into sort of their forming a coalition or forming a group of uh, revolutionaries. Oh, wonderful. Yes. Well, today at a historic site called Congo Square, which was a site where enslaved people were given one day off from work. However, they needed you to work on a Sunday. <laughs> you, you had to work. So sometimes you might be working seven days nonstop. Now, because the indigenous people were pushed out militarily by the French, then Spain, then France, then America. Okay. Those people were, were striving to get their land back. Because of the brutal oppression that black people suffered under all of those colonial powers, some of our people were successful in escaping, became maroons, runaway slaves in the swamps. In so doing, they built up alliances with the indigenous peoples. The indigenous people want their land back. The blacks want to be free. And so that would lead to romantic relationships such that today many of us are not just descendants of Africa, we are descendants of the indigenous peoples. And right. so today on carnival, during carnival season, there's a number, about 52 different uh, second line carnival organizations 
that decorate for Carnival. And in the process of designing their costumes that take almost a year to make, they have all kinds of secret images on them that they can only explain to the public. And it all is tied to paying honor to the indigenous people where they built alliances with. That's where that comes from. And that continues to be a tradition in the city of New Orleans, popularizing this. So perfect. All right. So, Mr. Leon, let's January 8th, we're striking the blow. What 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 does Charles and the the leaders, what does what are they what are they doing on January 8th? What what begins to happen? On January 8th, they implement their military strategy. Their goal was to capture the city of New Orleans, establish an independent black republic with its own sovereign state, similar to Haiti. Okay? To make this happen, they launched a two a two-pronged military assault. Number one, they're going to put together an advanced detachment of leaders composed of women and men whose job was to get inside the city of New Orleans and capture Fort St. Charles. According to their reconnaissance, Fort St. Charles housed more weapons and ammunition. The second part of the military strategy is they will launch a revolt up the river in St. John the Baptist Parish near Colonel Manuel Andre. Excuse me. This group of people will launch the uh, assault up the river, and as it proceeded down the river, it would gain gain in number as it proceeded down the river. It would be led by a group of young people who are playing drums. Behind them on horses would be the leaders, women and men leaders, who would be giving the orders, forward, charge, attack. And behind them would be the slave rebels, insurgents, with their weapons coming down the river in columns of four. Now, what they did prior to doing this, they elected their leadership. This is really significant in, in, in recording the documents, given the documentation of revolts, they elected women and men to lead them into a military assault. Now, keep this in mind. When they did this, this, this happened 40 years before the women, modern women's movement in America began, led by Susan Anthony and Elizabeth uh, Caton. Their newspaper, by the way, was called Revolution. So this is very significant that the fact that you're going to launch a military assault where you elected women to lead you. What does that mean? It means this. They had put faith in these people to bring them to military victory. War is the most complicated and the highest form of struggle. And the fact that they would elect women to lead them into a military assault says a lot about these people. OK, so when this thing yep. kicked off. They launched an attack at Colonel Manuel Andrews' plantation because there was a commissary there that housed many weapons. But unknowing to them, much of the weapons had been moved. They were not aware that early in the week, Colonel Manuel Andrews' son was killed in an incident up the river. The authorities in New Orleans met secretly with Colonel Manuel Andrews and persuaded him, look, something might be up. You need to move this stuff. So he moved 
much of the much of the weapons. So when they attacked the weapons, attacked the commissary, they discovered there wasn't as many guns as they had originally anticipated or had witnessed to. Okay. So they're not as fully armed. They now have to substitute many of the uh, rifles and guns with axes, plows, shovels, branches of trees, anything, because now the cat's out the bag. It's not like it's possible to jump on yeah. top of a stack and say, okay, we're calling the revolt off today. The revolt has been always secretly planned. They say we got to push on. Right, right, right. We got to speed it up yeah. because we got to get to New Orleans. So their goal was to get to New Orleans where the advanced detachment would then merge with the army of enslaved men and women coming to the city. And together they can capture all the critical targets inside the city. As word spread that this revolt was launched, by the way, Colonel Manny Andre was able to outmaneuver, flee across the river, seriously wounded, but not executed, not killed. Okay, He's able to regroup, team up with General Milton, and that's going to play later into the story where they launched a counteroffensive. Word gets to New Orleans because there were a number of loyal slaves that helped their master get in the buggies, race to New Orleans, and that would alarm uh, 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 alarm the authorities that a major insurrection is taking place up the river. So at this time, the governor of the city, of the, of the territory, is a man named Governor William C.C. C. Claiborne. He gets reported. The numbers of people that are up the river that are coming to New Orleans are close to the several hundreds. He's able to call an emergency meeting. The first thing they would do was to issue general orders that stated no Negro must be on the street after 6 p.m. And they posted that all around the city. It means curfew, military shutdown, because now they don't know who to trust. Okay. After that was posted, several about a dozen and a half black people will observe near Fort St. Charles. They're captured. They're arrested. They're brought to Fort Ferdinand for a polite interrogation. Okay? They were whipped, tortured, but they didn't give up any information. They were learned the leader of that attachment was, advanced attachment was a um, brother named Gilbert. Gilbert was owned by Colonel Manya Andre. When they realize that he is owned by Colonel Manya Andre, which is about 45 miles north of the city, they say, damn, how did you get into the city? Because the city at this time is surrounded by a wall that goes all around the city and surrounded by five forts. Now they're really worried. How did you get in here? You were able to get in here? Who else is involved? They tortured, whipped them, but they wouldn't give up any information. And the reason why they wouldn't give up information, they had taken an oath that we can't give up information. If we are captured, we know what the result's going to be. But we can't give up any information because that means more debts, more executions are going to happen. You see, this is what you have to understand. This is what our audience really has to understand. When they made the decision to do this, they were already free. I don't know how you take that. I don't know if that makes any sense to you. But once they made that decision, they were already free. They had cut fear. Amen. They had cut fear and moved forward. So they didn't give up any information. And as a result, they would be tortured. They would be shot. They'd be executed. And their heads would be cut off, placed on spikes to warn people never to resist again. At this time, they decided 
to complete their plan, they will send a courier on horseback to Washington, D.C. to inform them what's going on down here. We do not know how long it takes to get to Washington, D.C., okay? So they sent a courier every day to Washington, D.C. The, the Mars code, electricity has not come along yet in, his, in history, okay? So whenever that second person got there, he's bringing them up to date of what's going on down here because they may need help, okay? They came up with a plan to bring troops up the river in barges. At this time, soldiers on barges or any kind of naval vessel were called dragoons. That word has evolved in what you know today as Marines. When they got to what was called Jacques Fauché's plantation, which today is where the Louis Armstrong Airport is today, they saw them, several hundred coming down the road. There they are. So they get off the barges. A battle takes place. But at a certain point, the enslaved run out of ammunition because they were not fully armed. They forced to retreat back. They retreat back about 15 miles to a plantation called Bernard Bernouni to take a break. Meanwhile, scouts from uh, Colonel Manuel Andre and Milton have crossed the river. Scouts coming up the river from General Hampton under the leadership of William C.C. C. Claiborne, the governor. Find them, report back. They're right over there. They're right over there. They bring in cannons. Open up, over 100 people killed. Many got away. Charles is captured. His hands are chopped off. His feet are chopped off. He can't run. He can't fight back. They put a iron through his anus, anus out through his mouth. They built a campfire under him, and they roasted him alive. Why did they do this? They're trying to send a terrific terroristic message don't you ever rise up again. Those that they captured, they brought them on trial. The trial lasted for several weeks throughout February and March. Eventually, those people's heads were chopped off after they were executed, brought back to the plantation they came from. And so for about 20-some-odd miles up and down the river, their heads were on spikes. But they came back. Can you believe this? This is genuine. They came back in December to make another attempt. But that one did not get off the ground. In the diary of William C.C. Claiborne, he writes, if this one had gotten off the ground, it would have been been a bigger conflagration than that of St. Domain, unquote. (laughs) So, so Mr. Leon, I have a a question and it's kind of basic, but it's um, it's important to, you know, what you inspired in us taking your tour or what have you, this is a big reason of why I'm doing this show is this, why don't we know this history? How is this history buried? Well, we don't know the history because the oppressor class still controls the state apparatus and still continues to oppress us today. But let me just say this to you because this is not the complete story. We would not be tactically successful in this attempt to establish an independent republic, okay? But we would be strategically successful because it laid, we laid the foundation for more revolts to come. This is what you need to understand. Yep. The children and the grandchildren of those of 1811 would finish the job in the Civil War. Louisiana contributed more troops than any state, any state in the South. 
28,000, and most of them came from the river plantations along the river. We do not know exactly why that is. We believe it has something to do with not only the, the kind of exploitation that they suffer, but it has something to do with the inspiration by their ancestors who fought in 1811. We were able to get one foot of oppression off of us, child slavery. That's over with. But we still got one more foot to do, and that's wage slavery. So you have to look at this mm-hmm. in the whole context of history. We do not know much about this revolt, but not just this revolt. We do not know much about our revolutionary history as a people. What is allowed to be taught to us in schools is really social reformist history. I'm not saying that all social reformist history is bad, but I want you to understand the oppressor class doesn't want you to know any history. But if you must know some history, they're willing to (laughs) adjust or, or allow you to know just social reformist history. What is that? Social reformist history is the history of many reformers. They're simply saying, if you must resist me, if you must challenge me, then do it in a way of Dr. Martin Luther King, do it in a way of Dr. Right. Ralph Avenatti, do it in a way of all the other reformers that have come forth, because I can control them. I can control their movements, limit their movements, but I can't co- control revolutionary struggles. I tell people all the time, do you think that the, do you, do you, do you know the history of the I have a dream speech. Most people don't know that history. Listen, when that speech was written, it wasn't just Dr. King writing the speech. It was a whole group of a people. Stokely Carmichael, H. Rap Brown, all the people had a play in it. John Kennedy said, wait a minute, hell no, you ain't gonna say this. Oh, we're editing this. Oh, no, no, you ain't gonna, oh, look, we're gonna take this out. Oh, no, no, you can't say that. That whole thing was doctored up, man. These people, people who oppress us, aren't gonna give up like that. You see, right, right. So I, I have to. I'm, I'm, I'm. So there's a couple of things in context as I'm doing the show here. We just completed an interview with Taylor Branch, who did the sort of King trilogy and what have you. So we had that. And then I've been preparing for this episode simultaneously an interview that we'll have on Friday with Dr. Curtis Austin on the Black Panthers. And so when you were talking early about Charles DeLong of not just wanting to rebel, but to build something new, what I'm thinking about there is the Black Panthers 10-point program in in terms of, and I know it's not a, in, apples to apples comparison, but what I what what struck me in terms of you talking about Desloin and the five points of the utopian philosophy, the Caribbean revolts, the U.S. Constitution, the rights of men, then the rights of women, I'm tying the Panthers and Fred Hampton and Stokely Carmichael back to Charles Deslons. And, and now that may be a stretch, but I don't think it is. Because I think it is one sort of line of of bringing together all of our sort of struggles and movements forward. Anyway, so now I'm off on the tangent of of, of how all of this is coming together for me. But this is this is this has been really great. Let me ask you: How did you and why did you get into this work? Why do you do the hidden history tours and 
Why did you pursue this path of, of vocation? Well, I think it's a combination of combination of three things. First of all, I grew up in New Orleans, but my paternal ancestors were raised in St. Charles Parish and St. John the Baptist Parish, two parishes north of the city of New Orleans. And I had a cousin. Her name was Clara Duncan, affectionately known as Cousin Kizzy. Her mother and father and ancestors were enslaved. The little town she lived in was called Muntz, M-O-N-T-Z, the German name. But back in the day, it was called Dahomey Plantation. So between seven and 10 years old, she would introduce history to me. I would learn about slavery from her. And I would, as I'm growing up, learning from her, I would ask her, how did, how did we fight back? And she told me the story of 1811. And that's how I learned okay. that my ancestors participated in this revolt. The second thing is, my mother and father were educators. My mother was born in Texas, Longview. Her mother and father moved here, met a gentleman when she grew up. She met a gentleman named Duncan A. Waters. And those two became a dynamic team of educators. My father became district superintendent of schools of the third district. At that time, he was the boss of 33 principals. They gave my dad the worst schools. You know how that go. I do. Uh, gave him <laughs> I do. all the ghetto schools. He was the only black. Okay. You know how they go. How they do you? And my I mother do. was principal of a school. And my mother was the principal of a school that was named after a progressive black minister church that she used to attend when she was a child. So it was like the baton had been passed on. Today, there's a school named after my mother. So the combination of my parents, my parent, my mother was a historian. She planted seeds in me to love history. Started by my cousin who died at the age of 91 in 1971. So that combination would plant the interest in me to be a student of history. I've been active for more than 50 years, but there would be an incident in the French Quarter that would change the whole trajectory. The French Quarter is a place that's a legal place for all kinds of bourgeois decadence in the city of New Orleans. It's a $9 billion industry for tourism. Black people don't go to the French Quarter. Black people who live in New Orleans are not welcome in the French Quarter. We work in the French Quarter as employees, but we're not really welcome down there. It's right. July 4th weekend, 1995. I just happened to be down there walking with two friends, and I walk up on a restaurant that says Slave Exchange Restaurant. Shocked by what I'm seeing by the sign. I couldn't believe this. I looked in the window, doors, the doors are open. It's packed with people, people in there eating there. Their sandwiches, their poor boy sandwiches, and, you know, drinking their iced tea, lemonade, beer, whatever, having a grand time. But hanging from the ceilings, like Christmas decorations, or the whips, or the shackles that went around your wrist, your legs, your, your mouth. And we just looking at this. We just can't believe this. And people just having a grand, beautiful time. So the next day, it was on. We came back there with okay. 25 or 30 people to shut that damn place down. We're picketing up and down the street. Fights are breaking out. People are getting arrested. We're not letting anybody go in. This struggle begins to inflame the entire French Quarter. There's 325 white-owned businesses in the French Quarter. 
there's not there's only one black owned business in the whole French Quarter. That's a whole nother story. We're not allowed to own businesses in the French Quarter. Okay, the man is losing. The owner fourteen to eighteen thousand dollars a day. And in the course of this fight, two to three weeks later, the sign came down. A fictitious sign has now replaced it. And then about two weeks later, this company, a company called Hidden History Tours, got started. My point is, okay, I got into this as a result of a fight. I've always been inspired by the <laughs> history of our people, but it would be this yeah. that would lead us, a yeah. team of people, to start a tour operation that told the truth the true story of our people. And, and, and listen, you took us to some of those places. And, and, and again, I felt like I'd been dropped into a Canyon of information that, that, that not just um, it, like you said, it's hidden that I just had no idea how to, how to even get it there. So with everything going on across the country, to close minds and, and certainly not just through rhetoric, but through actual laws, sort of the anti-CRT laws. What is hidden history and what are you all doing that are targeting specifically younger people, younger minds? Well, we are working to introduce history to them in forms that we hopefully they can appreciate. So we've started what's called the Hidden History Festival. It has two components. We have launched a literary, visual, and performance art contest where young people get the opportunity to learn about their history and earn money at the same time. There are four different themes that our young people can connect with. And with those themes, they're encouraged to write an essay, do a poem, do a dramatic presentation. Uh, that's all, all that falls on the literary. Do a painting, a sculpture, ceramic. Also all visual. Do a dance, a rap song or whatever, performance. And they're, they're using these uh, genres, so to speak, to be able to celebrate and commemorate the... Um, Charles Deslong Revolt. Now, these themes, these, these themes are not complicated. For instance, like a young person could um, look at the times and conditions that gave rise to Charles Deslong Revolt and create their own art piece, okay? Or a young person could look at what are some of the leading personalities. Charles was one, but there were others. On our website called elma.com, we encourage young people to click on resources. And when they click on resources, there's an article, an essay written uh, by us that summarizes the entire revolt. And by reading this, you can gain all kinds of ideas how you're going to express yourself in the art form you choose. But the number one piece you should get is this book. This is the most definitive account of the revolt. It's 317 okay. pages. It's called On to New Orleans, Louisiana's Love and Slave Revolt, written by Brother Albert Thrasher. He's deceased. Published by me. I'm the publisher. This book came out in 1995. 
There have been several other comical books that have come out. One is Daniel Rasmussen's a young, white, arrogant white boy who took the tour uh, with me several years ago. The tour on the 1811 yeah. revolt. But he behaved so uppity to this day. Maybe he'll watch this presentation. To this day, he doesn't know. He didn't get the whole tour. He got 48% of the tour. <laughs> he, does, he doesn't right, know. Right, right, you see? right. Right, right. And he writes this book called The American Uprising. Uh, no, what is yeah. it? Not? It's, not, it it's, it's, it's not called The American. Called, yeah, The American Uprising, which is another. Yeah, American distortion, Uprising. Which is another distortion. These were not Americans, okay? They, they weren't citizens. And then most of his book is just a book of fantasy. It's, it's a book written of assertions. But pretty soon there's going to be a book out that's going to tear that book up, expose it with some other things. So anyway, um, the uh, students are encouraged to look at this contest. There's four different themes or aims. I mean, four different themes they can choose from and win $500, $300, $200. So they're learning their history, some of their history at least, and earn money at the same time. So we had a good group of participants last year, and we're hoping to have a even larger group of participants this year. Any person on the planet in 7th to 12th grade can participate. And that is at lmaah.com. I'll make sure I put this in the in the show notes and uh, so that, that people can, can get it. And it's Hidden Histories, Hidden History Tours, I have to tell people, listen, I went to to undergrad, Jackson State in Jackson, Mississippi. And so I spent a lot of time in New Orleans doing a whole lot of uh, bourgeoisie consumption and dancing there in New Orleans. So I didn't realize that the rich history of New Orleans until later, actually taking first taking my daughter for college visit to Xavier. And we'd done some tour and the guide said, you know, New Orleans has great amnesia and has not recovered economically since the Civil War. And it it, it was something that stuck with me. And then sort of later after that, I said, I got to figure out what's going on here and reading. And then that's when my wife and I came across your tours. And I hope we got more than 48 percent. Of, of the tour. I hope we got, you know, I hope we got, that's what I was going to say, but because listen, it, it has been life changing and I encourage everyone who, if you're like me and you love New Orleans, the food, the dance, the, the Mardi Gras, and I love the, the, the Indians, the black masking Indians. And I love that tradition, but there's so much that is happening. It's kind of the way, it, it's like in plain sight, but if you don't know what to look for, it, it's, it's hidden. So anyway, we I, I certainly appreciate you. As we begin to wrap up, I want to ask you, Mr. Waters, what does it mean to live well? Well, I think what it means for me is to be able to take care of yourself. Okay. I say that but because um, I'm a member of an organization called the Civilbacks. We mentor eighth grade boys. In one hour, I have to be at a school with five other silverbacks as we uh, mentor them. We get an hour of their time. And what we do, we have a curriculum. 
where we work to tell our young people what it takes to be successful. And our definition of success is being able to take care of you first. All right. Mm -hmm. In the course of life, if you meet someone, you decide to fall in love, get married, raise a family. Before you can do that, you have to be able to take care of you first. So we have like Mm -hmm. three stages of manhood, taking care of you first, taking care of a family second. And then if you want to help beyond your family, it's called chiefhood, taking care of the community, other people. All right. That's my definition of success. And that's my definition, which I live by. I love that. I love that. And we end with a question that talks about music because that's a big part of of, of the the inspiration for the show. And in honor of Hidden Histories, I don't want to get this wrong. So I don't want to do the Mount Rushmore of, of New Orleans music. New Orleans is the wellspring of modern music and American music. But doing the Mount Rushmore would be a very chauvinistic way of presenting it. I'm going to honor the Lakota people because where Mount Rushmore sits is actually Lakota land. It's the sacred land of what they call the six grandfathers. And people came along and put four presidents on it. So but it's really the six grandfathers of their people and sort of sort of that. And so with that, Mr. Uh, Waters, what I want to ask is. With New Orleans being the wellspring of of modern music and certainly American music, who are the six most important per you <laughs> acts, people, family, however you want to classify it of the New Orleans canon of music or what New Orleans has produced? Well, for me, for me, there are three. I, I won't be able to give you six. Three, okay. Uh, first you won't be able to give me six. All right, we. Can- everybody has their own, you know, opinions and beliefs and what have you. But for me, it's three. The first is the phenomenal, phenomenal great Miss Jermaine Basil. Miss Jermaine Basil oh, is a okay. 80-plus-year-old woman. She's still with us, a former uh, teacher, music teacher, high school teacher from Xavier Prep and other schools, an educator. And um, her music is just rich and phenomenal as she uh, sings and moves her bodies and her shoulders. You feel the music. Uh, uh, you feel the music of blues and what have you. And I would strongly uh, earn, encourage people uh, just Google it up. And I'm sure there's some songs you can catch free on Google yeah. and get acquainted with. And then you might be inspired to purchase some of her uh, great musical selections and creations. All right. The second person would be um, Jermaine Basil. Yes, the second person would be the great Ellis Marcellus. Mr. Marcellus, uh, the father uh, and his wife were the father of uh, four or five phenomenal musicians like, uh, you know, some of his sons by name, Wynton Marcellus and others. He was uh, not just a great piano player, but he was a great teacher, a teacher at, at the university level. I was one of his students when I was a young person. He taught my wife and, and myself, both of us graduates of Xavier University. He taught African-American history, African-American music to us. And that was a, uh, a way of us learning about the contributions that other uh, local uh, black musicians uh, have, have con- 
created, you know, contributed to, to, to New Orleans, like Louis Armstrong and many other great people, as well as other people around the country. So uh, as an instructor and as our teacher, we would learn quite a bit uh, from him. He's no longer with us. Um, uh, there's a number of muralistic and uh, institutional things in the city named after him to try to keep uh, his legacy alive and, and, and what he yeah. brought to the world. And the third person is Dr. Michael White. Dr. Michael White ah, is, yeah. mm-hmm. is a university professor at Xavier University, uh, a yeah. music historian, a legend in the city of New Orleans. Uh, uh, he not only uh, plays music, has a band, and uh, he, he, he uh, teaches and talks about the history of, of music, history of black music in the city here and around the world. He's still with us. Uh, and uh, we're, we're fortunate to have two what I call living legends who they're just not great musicians uh, uh, and singers in their own right. They're educators. They have uh, excelled at formally uh, presenting these ideas and lessons and teachings. It's, you're not talking about people who are trying to or, or sharing information from the hip. You're talking about people who have mastered this stuff. This material and 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 this is not to overglorify PhDs, but what I'm saying is there are people who have definitely earned the title of doctor, okay? <laughs> because no, the masters. Yeah, no. Listen, I, I I completely no. I'm I'm right there 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 with you, and and it, I, I get it. Jermaine Basil, Ellis Marcellus, and Dr. Michael White. I have to say. One thing about sort of when my wife and I were there for your tour, we went to Snug Harbor to hear Mr. Marcellus. He was ill that evening, and we ended up hearing a, a great show from Herlin Riley, who filled in for him. So, you know, it wasn't Mr. Marcellus. Uh, so we didn't get to, I didn't get to hear him before he passed along, but Herlin Riley did a great job. And when I did sort of my vision for the show, of what we wanted to do. And we haven't gotten to this yet. The first guest that I wrote down was actually Winton. We still haven't had Winton on the show, but we, we had Winton there. And like when um, a, a, a couple of shows previous to this, Dr. Brian Mitchell mentioned Ellis Marcellus. Mr. Ellis Marcellus is, is a part of that canon. And he was also a student there. So I am not not surprised to hear that. I'm happy to hear that which lets me know that the universe is pointing me in the right direction. And I know Winton will be on camera with us soon at some point to, to talk about music and, and development. Mr. Waters, I want to, to, to not just say thank you, but I, I really appreciate you. And I want to say, you know, our audience will appreciate this episode, but you are also a very important person on my journey and the work you've done and are doing has been personally inspirational inspirational to me. And I hope that, you know, the work that we do here can somehow even match a corner of influence of, of, of so many that you that you've uh, influenced and impacted. So we appreciate you. Oh, I thank you. I thank you very, very much. And pretty soon we're going to have that T-shirt and we're going to send you a complimentary copy for you and your wife. Because <laughs> the all idea right, came from right, you. That's very good. 
working on it right All now. All right, that is very good. All right, so everyone else, listen, I will make sure that you get the books here. And I want to emphasize to everyone, there's no podcast, there's no documentary that replaces study. And um, as Gil Scott Heron said, the first revolution is in the mind. So the history and the reading and the music and understanding all of those things is so important to to the continuation of struggle. And that nothing started like it didn't start with Charles Deslone. It didn't end there. And it didn't start with Dr. King. God bless him. But it didn't end there. We have to keep this thing going. And information is the way to do it. I will see you all after this. And this is the first episode of Black History Month, even though we're doing this in January. So thank you for for kicking us off, Mr. Waters. Everyone else, bye-bye. We appreciate you here at the Parlay in All Blue. Please tell someone about us. Share the podcast. Make sure you leave a comment. You can find the Parlay in All Blue at Spotify, Apple, Google, Amazon, or Stitcher, wherever you receive your podcast, you can find us there. Make sure that you add us as a favorite, follow us, or subscribe, whatever it is you need to do to make sure that you're plugged in. We want to say a big thanks to DJ Marky G for allowing us to use his music exclusively on our podcast. We appreciate it, bro. Much love. Thank you again. I'm out.